Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Brooklyn, New York, where the kids have been busy shaking their groove things, it's Blazin' Rye Radio. Tonight on the show, Ryan welcomes disco music legend D.C. LaRue. Be sure to catch D.C. performing hits like Cathedrals and Let Them Dance at the last New Year's Eve disco extravaganza this New Year's Eve at the El Dorado in Coney Island. And now, the man who once got hung up on by Mickey Rooney, but then haven't we all? Ryan Holmes! Welcome to Blazing Rye Radio. Our guest. Well, thank you. We'll try it again. We'll, we'll do it again. Welcome to Blazing Rye Radio. Our guest tonight is the legendary disco artist behind such classics as Cathedrals and Let Them Dance. He will be performing at the very last Ultimate Disco New Year's Eve at the El Dorado in Coney Island this December 31st. Please welcome to Blazing Rye at long last. D.C. LaRue, thank you so much for being here. Well, it's my pleasure. My pleasure. We were talking a little bit about cassettes and CDs before, and, and you know that I love vinyl. Who do you still listen to on vinyl? Who do I listen to on vinyl? Yeah. The stuff that I can't get. There's, you know, believe it or not, there's a lot of stuff that still hasn't been converted. I have favorites. Um, Mary Kay Trio, A Night in Las Vegas, stuff that Andeka, she did a solo, al- Mary Kay did a solo album called You Don't Know What Love Is. Stuff like that. I have a Doris Day, um, um, uh, it's not a 12-inch, it's a 10-inch LP, one of her first LPs mm-hmm. called The Thrill Is Gone. Oh, no, You're My Thrill. Okay. And the I Thrill li- Is Gone is B.B. King, no? Yeah, B.B. King. Uh-huh. And so I listen to Doris Day records on it. And who else do I listen to? Oh, Magana King on Mainstream. Her stuff was never re-released. Uh, um, oh, the other one that I love, Carmen McRae, um, her Mainstream stuff. The stuff that she did on Decca is released, and the stuff she did on Atlantic is re- has been released, but uh-huh. the mainstream stuff is still very uh, hard to get, unavailable. Mm-hmm. I listen, the stuff I listen to uh, it's on vinyl is the stuff that I've had for a long, long time that I can't get CD configurations of. Right. You know, I'm not such a pu- I love vinyl, but I'm not such a purist that I'm not lazy, mm-hmm. you know, and it's always easier for me to flip in a, a CD and play something I love, like Donna Washington. Mm-hmm. I mean, I do have her, her her vinyl recordings on roulette. You know, the best stuff she ever did was on roulette. But and I have, they're, but they're pretty beat up and they're scratched up or whatever. And I'm I'm not spurious that I wouldn't just take that. I have everything she's done on CD configuration. Now I just pop it in my CD player or in my computer now while I'm working on, on stuff right. on my computer. But so that's the kind of stuff I still listen to. What um, do you make of this big vinyl resurgence in recent last couple of years? Well, I think it's a uh, it's interesting because we're getting a, I think I had mentioned that, you know, the generations, with the generations, it's generational. I believe the degree interested in disco and dance music is generation, uh, generational. The thing is, because the people who ran for the CDs or the cassettes and the A-tracks or whatever to get away from vinyl, because of the convenience or the, it was um, that generation 
now I always say it's not their kids, but it's their kids' kids. Mm-hmm. And they look at a vinyl record, and they they're not trying to escape it. They're not trying. They know nothing about it, and uh, they go, "Whoa, whoa, what the fuck?" It's like, "What the fuck is this?" Mm-hmm. You know, it's brand new to them, and it's fresh to them. And and I think that the, then they listen to it, and if they've got a good system, it does sound warmer and better and and nicer. You know, mm-hmm. to their ear initially. It's not. It doesn't have that brittle sound that the digital has, and so. Um, I think that's the reason, and and I think it's the kids. It really, it's the younger generation. Of course, then you get the the older uh, people who remember fondly remember the vinyl thing, and they get nostalgia, and then they want to go back there. We all want to go back, yeah. you know. And so, so they want to go back there, and so they're buying the vinyl as well. You know, I I think I mentioned to you I was um I was at Barnes and Nobles when the first day it wasn't really, Adele the new Adele record came out. Yeah. And you said it really hadn't been out. It was the next day it was coming out, but they were just loading these records mm-hmm. into the rack at Barnes and Noble in Union Square. And this woman rushes over and grabs it. <laughs> she, you know, but she was about I would say forty. You know. Uh-huh. And she said, "Oh." Uh, and I was just reading the liner notes, which is some, she, that's something you can't do with this. <laughs> you know, yeah, the indulgence the of yeah, the indulgence of seeing the gorgeous fo- photograph on the cover and yeah. reading the liner notes and checking the track list to MP3. Download it from, forget it. You yeah. don't have any of the um, the trappings of of uh, the record industry. I used to love those. I used to yeah. be more concerned about the album cover sometimes than I was about the content. Yeah, I that's mean, how I, I love the album covers. Mm-hmm. I love them. Some album co- I just want to buy the albums just because of the covers. Well, no idea well you know, I remember, you know, Milton Glaser, famous. Milton Burl with the huge. No, Milton no. Glaser. <laughs> He's an art director, famous. He did the famous Dylan posters back in the, the 60s and the 70s. I went okay. to a seminar that he gave in the, uh, I think it was like the early 90s. Mm-hmm. He was, I mean, everybody, he was like the big honcho graphic designer in town in New York City. And they were discussing uh, the configurations, the, the CD configurations uh-huh. and the cassette configurations relative to the artwork on a, a 12-inch vinyl record. And I remember he was going on. Everybody was complaining. All the artists there and, and, you know, were saying, and I was there because I was doing album covers at the time. Okay. And uh, they were complaining because it wasn't such a service. And then he came up and he said, well, he said, I don't know anybody in this room who would turn down designing a postage stamp. And uh, are you all trying to tell me that you can't be creative and inspired and uh, create new medium uh, and, and new art forms and new directions of graphic design on a postage stamp? You can't do it. I dare you to turn it down. So he made sense. I mean, it shouldn't be that the size of the of, the, of what you're designing for shouldn't matter uh, about the creativity that you that inspires you to design. Mm-hmm. Um, so it made sense to me. Hmm. And I was kind of sold for a while, you know, the CD. If you can yeah. do a poster stamp, you do a CD cover, you do the packaging for an 8-track cassette, you know, it's all the same. Mm-hmm. But at this point, years later, I've changed my... I go back to the original thought uh, that the, the 12 by 12 inch... Uh, uh, um, area is great to work with for mm-hmm. for an artist, an art director, a photographer. Also, um, and like you said a minute ago, and with MP3s or whatever, there's no artwork at all. Not yeah. at all. It's like you don't even care. So, so 
sometimes on iTunes or Spotify, I think there's like one particular app on Spotify. I don't even know. I don't think they have apps anymore, but there was an app on Spotify that showed you all the um, artwork. Covers, and artwork, and the, yeah, yeah. And it was particularly uh, there when it came to early 2000s hip-hop, so I could see like all the 50-cent artwork that I saw in the CD at the yeah, time. Yeah. Um, so I subscribed to that app for a bit, but I think the apps are gone from Spotify now. But sometimes with iTunes, you can still get all the artwork. You can. Yeah. It's still very small. And you can't right. do anything with it. You know. yeah. uh, if you download a track, um, sometimes you'll get the image from the the official image right. that go, goes along with the, the album. But yeah. And if you're playing it, it'll pop up. Uh-huh. On the screen as you're playing it, you know, in, yeah. in the iTunes or whatever, but sure. it's so tiny, whatever. Yeah. I I like the the artwork and I like the, I, you know what I I think I mentioned this to you, I used to I used to love the smell of records. Yeah. When you opened up a brand new sure. sealed record, uh, and even before they started shrink wrapping them, mm-hmm. I can remember my first Elvis Presley, the first Elvis Presley album that I had my I dragged my dad into the record store screaming, yelling to buy it, you know. I was a little kid, you know, and and he got it, and I can remember bringing it home so carefully and sliding the record out and smelling it <laughs> before I even played it, you know, that wonderful vinyl smell. So there's a whole thing, there's a whole uh, um, tactile thing about vinyl as well, yeah. and I like it still used to hold it in the light before it got all beat up and the way the grooves shimmered. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to make records. Mm-hmm. It's funny, you know, I always wanted to, be, to make the records, <laughs> and, you know, now i uh, now they're coming back, and I'm I'm glad. I yeah. won't be making records anymore, but I love it. I love to see my records that I've made. You know, right, the and ones I that's still around. Do have some here, and I'll show you those in a bit. Um, and with this uh, store that you went into with your dad for the Elvis album, was it in Meriden? It was in Jimmy Azalina's record store in Meriden, Connecticut, on Main Street. Yep. So that's where you grew up in Meriden and Cheshire. Well, Cheshire. I was born in Meriden, but okay. I grew up. My dad's business was in Meriden, but I grew up in Cheshire. Uh, okay. But the, in Cheshire, the little record store was Waddinger's Record Room. There was a record store in Cheshire. Oh, it's a little one, the, right wow. back of the town hall in in, uh, in the center of town. Okay. And uh, uh, Wendy Waddinger, Mrs. Waddinger, I was <laughs> her son was uh, a Wally Waddinger, and he was in my class. And his mom had a little record store, and she had she had converted the front room of the house. So they lived, you know. One family, three floor, wooden structured house, you know, mm-hmm. wooden frame house. And she had, uh, I haven't thought of this in years, but she had um, a record store uh, and she had the albums, not such a big collection of albums, but she had the 45s. And she used to go to the distributor in, in New Haven. Oh, and, and yeah, and she used to <laughs> go to Cutler's, Cutler's record store. Close down, R.I.P. I know, yeah. I know, Cutler's. I used to go to Cutler's myself when I finally so got I. my driver's license. Yeah. And um, and she had, and I can remember, uh, she used to pride herself in getting, I used to listen to Alan Freed on the radio and uh, Hot Dog Lorenz out of uh, KBW in Boston. Okay. And Alan Freed out of 1010 Winds here in New York City. And she used to love it because she used to listen to that station too because, believe it or not, a little Cheshire, Connecticut was a, there was a little pocket of thriving doo-wop rock and olders mm-hmm. like me, you know. And uh, I can remember the, when I got Will Used to Love Me Tomorrow by the Shirelles, the 45. I went in. I said, you probably don't have this one, Mrs. Waddinger. You know, she said, oh, I just got it from the distributor. And it was like that Red Scepter label. Uh-huh. And you, you pull it out and you smell it and you watch the, the groups. I mean, I loved records. How old were you? I, well, I was good. I was in high school. Okay. I was, you know... Early high school, and it's the it's like 
maybe a freshman. Mm-hmm. I was imagining this like little five-year-old. Oh, no, that was that was before. That was um, that was with uh, Jimmy Azzolini's record uh, record store in Meriden. Mm-hmm. Uh, Elvis Presley. Mm-hmm. Elvis Presley changed my life. It's, it's hard. I'm reading about him now. You know, I'm reading mm-hmm. the two-book uh, thing on his biography. I'm, I'm careless love. I'm now at, with him in Las Vegas. Because it, I was listening to an Elvis Presley. First of all, he changed my life. Up to the point of Elvis, I was never. I mean, I was never attracted to him physically. I mean, it wasn't like I thought he was hot or anything. But he, his vocals. I mean, he was on fire. I mean, he was just on fire, and he was so different, so unique. And I had been listening to uh, all the doo-wop stuff on Alan Freed, you know, and uh, the heartbeats and the harp tones and the flamingos and all that. And then Elvis came along. And uh, he was a white boy who had that thing, and uh, I had wanted to be a, a tap dancer up to that point. <laughs> and I had always written songs, but I wanted to be, I wanted to be another Gene Kelly, Fred Astaire. I took okay. tap dancing lessons, and I performed all around and all the talent shows, and I was, I even had photographs of me in my tap shoes. I posted one already on Facebook. When I was a little kid, curly hair. Uh-huh. And then um, all of a sudden, it was Elvis Presley, and overnight, I didn't want to be a tap dancer anymore. I didn't want to be Gene Kelly. I wanted to be. I wanted to make records, which is uh, what I ultimately ended up doing. You know, so that's when you a lot knew of my life. Elvis. That, but Elvis is the one who changed me. And then mm-hmm. I got a guitar. I, I was mm-hmm. my mom always had a piano, mm-hmm. so I'd write songs on the piano all. Since I can remember, I wrote songs. I played by ear. She taught me how to play by ear, and I wrote songs ever since I could remember. How I does one? Songs. I see. I'm always fascinated by this because you know how like everyone who reads music wants to know how to play by ear, and everyone who plays by ear wants to know how to read music. Yeah, but how do you, how does someone l- learn to play by ear like your mom taught you? Well, she would teach me chords and whatever. Mm-hmm. I, it just came so naturally. It's a, you know, it's, I don't want to sound corny, but it's a gift. It's, you know, it really is genetically something inside me. And uh, I also remember uh, I, I used to play in the school orchestra, the violin, mm-hmm. and I could never read music. And you know what I would do? I would, <laughs> for a couple of years, I would, I loved the violin, but what I would do is I would go, Mr. Felge was the music teacher, and, and he would go, and, and we'd sit and we'd go over the, the, the piece, go over the piece, go, you know, at orchestra rehearsal. And then I'd go home, and I'd pick it out by ear, and learn it by ear, and then the next time I'd go into rehearsal, I'd do the whole thing, and I wasn't even reading the music, but everybody assumed I was reading the music, but I would memorize it by ear. Um, a lot of great uh, composers don't know how to read music. Uh, Irving Berlin could only play in one key. Mm-hmm. He couldn't read music either. Is that Carlos Santana only ever plays in A minor, right? So maybe it could be. Yeah, I think so. Uh, yeah. That's why almost all his songs sound so similar now. Yeah, but the, so that's the point. So you don't have... Uh, Bob Crew, who I worked with, uh, who's a, who was one of the greatest living songwriters, lyricists that ever lived on the face of the earth. His string of hits is just monumental. Never read or write music. Wow. So that was, like, you know, it's interesting. You don't have to. You don't uh-huh. have to. I never had to. When, when it got to a point where I needed to have the songs copied down, there were copyists to do things right. like that. You know, the copied it down. Sure. So, uh, and yeah. And as a kid, you would... Uh, go to your in, your bed and and uh, hide yourself under a tent of pillows That's and right. listen to the That's radio. Right. Sure. Why would you do that? Because I wanted. To, I, I'm, I've always been a very solitary person, you uh-huh. know. And so, uh, and as much as if you look at my, I always say as much as if you look at my yearbook, and I have, uh, I'm a 
chairman of the, the prom committee, and I'm the Atlantic fan of Review, and I'm writing the songs, and I've done the school newspaper, I'm the music reporter, and, and the yearbook, I'm the layout editor, and the design chief, and whatever, and I was probably the most talented in my senior year. And as much as that part of my, my, uh, my personnel, my humanity exists, on the other side of the coin, I was really always, if I had my druthers, I would be home with my dog, Tina, in my bedroom listening to R&B, to, to rock music, to do up on the radio. So why do all these extra things? Ah, you know what? Because they were just part of me, too. You know, it's part yeah. of my thing, too. I remember when I was photographer for the uh, National Arts Club uh, in the 90s. I was a principal photographer mm-hmm. there in Gramercy Park. And... Uh, I would go to all these wonderful functions and these parties and these gold medal parties and photograph. You name the, the star, I photograph them. I mean, mm-hmm. it's as simple as that. I mean, you name a name, I photograph them. Because Paul Anka. No. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> no. Oh, no, I knew you. Who was I supposed to name? Tom uh, Berenger, the actor. No, you're supposed to name people like Glenn Close and, oh. and uh, well, uh, Marlo Thomas. And, oh, have you heard uh, about Danny Thomas? <laughs> no, I told what? you about him. Fine. He liked taking a kiss. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, under a glass coffee table. Well, is that the truth or is it just rumor? It's just hearsay. I think it's been verified. Okay. <laughs> by, by his By his daughter? But no, no. <laughs> by his daughter. <laughs> so, well, so you photographed well, well, I was there. I was, well, I was, oh, name him. Uh, just, and I had the most wonderful time. And, and uh, But I also knew as I was doing it mm-hmm. that I wouldn't be, if I had just had an invitation to go to attend the event mm-hmm. and I didn't have work there. I wouldn't be there. I'd be home reading. Right. That's. Can you understand that? Sure. Now, once I got there, I loved it, mm-hmm. and and I just had the eating and the dining and the celebrities and the whole thing. But I, and I Alden James, who was the president of the club at the time, who hired me, I said, hey, Mr. James, I can't thank you enough because unless I had work to do here, I mean, I, he would also invite me to things like the Thanksgiving dinners there. And the Christmas Eve's there, but if I weren't ph- photographing, I wouldn't go. Right, yeah. You know, if I just wouldn't go. Are you going to have me photograph Christmas Eve? I'll be there. And I would love it. You yeah. know, but and you'd make some money. And I'd make some money. Yeah. But, um, so that's, that's the, just the way I am. And I don't know what the difference is. I sure. just, you know, it's just, um, I, I loved people and I loved, I used to give the best Halloween parties. I oh, mean, yeah. oh, people would anticipate my Halloween parties in Cheshire. Yeah. Okay. Oh, please, they'd, come from, they'd come from Southington and New Britain and uh-huh. uh, Hartley and New Britain. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, because it would just be wild. Uh, and the next day, they'd be, oh, we were all kids, we were all underage. And the next day, the, the lawn would be littered with beer cans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the front. That was a bad little kid, actually. Where were your parents? They were there. They were there. <laughs> and at my the party. grandmother, my grandmother would be cooking all the. She's like, "Well, these kids gonna stop eating," and she would be making beans and hot dogs and hamburgers and whatever, you know. But everybody loved it. And the cops never got called. No. Okay. No. Tell me, tell me more about your hip black pot smoking grandma. She didn't smoke pot, but she was very hip. But I had a very strange relationship with my 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 folks. Um, my I had it uh, as much as I loved my dad, and he was a terrific. Uh, provider mm-hmm. and and a, a very more talented than I was. Different talents, different talents, but an amazing human being. What did he Self-taught. do? Well, he was uh, a insurance and real estate man, okay. uh, 
he was uh, uh, he kitchen cabinets, wholesale kitchen cabinets for housing developments. Uh, he opened up the first mall in Wallingford, mm-hmm. the first shopping mall in Wallingford. Was his uh, but he was pretty much uh, he had his own kind of life, and he was in his own kind of head, like me. Even though he's married to the family, and uh, he was absent a lot for me. And my mom was a wreck. <laughs> you know, she was just a, she had been an abused child, and she was functioning okay. But I mean, no nervous breakdowns or anything. But she wasn't really there for me either. So my grandmother uh, had a heart attack, and she moved in with the family. Just when I was a little kid, and uh, so she took the place of my mom and dad really and 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 the things that I wanted to do she never said no I mean she totally indulged me I mean I just I, whatever I, she she took to, to Brooklyn Paramount on the train to see you know, feed rock and roll shows into the state theater in Hartford to see George Hondog Lorenz and I mean you name it and she would just she would encourage me, and she, if I didn't want to do tap dancing, oh, it's a shame of doing tap. Then I bought a guitar, oh, and I learned how to play that by ear. You know, mm-hmm. and she wrote very encouraging. You know? Wouldn't these shows be like all black people in the crowd except for a white boy and a That's grandmother? That's right, for sure, for sure. Yeah. I, I can remember when I, the State Theater, one of the first shows, we took the train up from Meriden to mm-hmm. Hartford. And the theater, well, I don't know, it's probably not even there anymore. But you could walk from the station, mm-hmm. and it was like on the edge of the ghetto. And I can remember Bo Diddley, first time I saw Bo Diddley was at the State Theater. And boom, you know, thing. And all the all the blacks were smoking weed and drinking out of flasks. And, and Bo Diddley, once he started that jungle thing, the hand-size thing, it got crazy. And they were dancing on the, the, the seats of the theater, pulling up the the carpet and the, it was like wild just wild and, and my grandmother and I would be sitting there surrounded by this like this tribal thing and we were we were the only white faces in the crowd would you just sit or would you engage we did, we did. and then when I finally got to take me to, to the Brooklyn Paramount there was a group called um, uh, the Heartbeats Crazy Love Our Love Crazy Love I was so crazy on Old Town Records and right behind the Paramount there was a, um, a diner where they, the groups used to hang out all the time between the shows or whatever, and like uh, before they went on, and I dragged her around, and I stood in line at the diner, and it was all these, it was so ghetto, <laughs> getting autographs of all these black doo-wop singers, you know, it was just wild, and she would never say nothing to me, never say and it was fabulous. Speaking of uh, doo-wop, I didn't realize that your music career spans all the way back to 19... 19- 61. I've known you as a disco artist, but yeah. you were doing stuff before that. So what kind of music were you doing when you first started out? Well, I was, it was, I, when I first started, got signed to, uh, Bob Crew signed me, uh, and my first record came out on ABC Paramount. Mm-hmm. The, uh, and I would write, there was a whole, there was a whole pivotal change in my whole creative thing, too. Um, I, I was writing, I Love You, You Love Me, Boy, Girl, Broken Heart, Romantic, Ballad, Teenage mm-hmm. Ballad Songs. A la Paul Anka, You Are My Destiny, uh, 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 who else, Johnny Tilson, Jimmy Clanton, those kind of songs. Mm-hmm. And um, so initially I did that, but that ultimately throughout the whole thing I did country-tainted things, I did pop things, I did Simon and Garfunkel kind of stuff, always looking for a niche, you know, and every time I would change producers, 
uh, they would uh, my my music would be the same, but the, the era would be different. It would be five years later, and something else was on the radio. So they would try to make me conform to a particular. And I was always very unhappy with the recordings because they were never they never sounded like I had wanted them to sound in my head, you know. And I didn't know how to. There you go. I didn't know how to write music, uh-huh. and I couldn't translate what I heard to the arrangers and the producers. So I was at their mercy mm-hmm. until I got to Ron Frangip- Ron, um, what was his name? Not Frangipani. Yeah, it was Ron Frangipani. <coughs> the, the arranger that I worked with, Donnie Kirshner. With Donnie Kirshner, I was back to lush ballads, like uh, kind of like a very sensitive, kind of Barry Manilow stuff. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and working with Ron Frangipani in my apartment and at the piano, and he finally, I was, we were on the same wavelength all of a sudden, you know, and he finally heard what I was hearing. It was the first recording session that came close to what I wanted to sound like. And then, uh, then my whole point of view changed with with disco. Uh, by that time, with Krishner, it was over, and I I decided I've been trying for for fifteen twenty years, and I'm not going to have a hit. So I picked up photography. I did very well right away, and um, uh, and then I, with the introduction of drugs and everything into my life and dancing or whatever, and then uh, my whole my whole my whole mental thing changed about what I wanted to write about. And I didn't. My life was not about I love you, you love me. I'm lost without you. Because I, I've never felt that way about a human being in my life. You know, I was. You never loved and lost. Uh, not like I don't that. I get all Oprah on you. Not like that. Uh huh. Not like that. Okay. Uh, I've had four tremendous love affairs in my life. I wouldn't change a thing. Mm-hmm. They all ended amicably, mm-hmm. and uh, for reasons that I understood. You know, and there was maybe you didn't like the fact that it was that it was winding down, but I don't think relationships that you can't sustain that high energy no in a relationship no matter what. You know, I think most people after after years and years of being together settle. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I can't uh, I can't abide with someone else walking out of me or changing or falling in love with somebody else without destroying me. It's like next that was fun next. I don't let it bother me uh-huh. because I also understand that monogamy is insane. Okay. That it's not part of our DNA as human beings. Mm-hmm. That uh, and if and and I in my lifetime I can say I loved more than one person at the same time, very deeply, unconditionally, for different reasons mm-hmm. with each individual. So I had gotten to that point in my life where I was just and I said and then I got hooked up with Jonathan who was just. Out of sight, and I was doing an album cover with her, and uh, <clears throat> I had never really paid it honestly. I know she did Society's Child, which is an important record about a white girl dating a black man, but I really wasn't into her until I started listening to uh, Stars and mm-hmm. be- Between the Lines and uh, at 17, and um, she uh, she was writing about real deal romances, real deal relationship situations. Um, stuff that I just talked about in my life, you know, it wasn't. You're not at the mercy of it. I, I'm not. I love you. I, you love me. You don't have to say you love me. Just be here. You know, all that garbage. Because mm-hmm. that romantic thing, that troubadour romantic vision of love, is just a fantasy anyway. So I started and with the dancing around and the introductions of big time drug use into my life, and I do believe it made a difference. 
I don't think I would have written cathedrals without it. So it made a positive difference. A positive difference, initially. initially. Mm-hmm. It's like when uh, uh, Elton John is a, is a real sober guy now, mm-hmm. and you can say since he got sober, he's like 25 years sober, you can say he's doing better than ever, and my God, he's just like a money-making machine. But I... If you talk to Elton, he goes, well, oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. And my feeling is, if Elton weren't getting high on cocaine all the time, none of that would have happened. None of those songs would have come out. None of those outrageous performances would have happened. If he were a sober man back then, there would be no Elton John as we know him now, sober or not. You know, it's part of your DNA. It's part of your, your resume. You so, always hear that about the Beatles with Sgt. Pepper. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. If they hadn't gotten into the hallucinogenics and the... Maharisha, whatever, it, they would be still go, writing, I want to hold your hand. Mm-hmm. Absolutely correct. And same thing with the Rolling Stones. The um, Very important, very important to introduce, in my life, the introduction of heavy drug use and alcohol. And now I'm not advocating the use of it, <laughs> you know, and maybe you can do without it, and I don't do it now, uh, because if I did it now, I'd be dead. And uh, But um, it was there, and, and it changed my whole point of view, lyrically. Mm-hmm. And uh, and the music changed. I heard something different in my head uh, with disco and what they were doing with disco and early early disco. And um, and I was lucky enough to work for Aram Shefferman, Tin Wheel Drive, and design an album cover right at the very time that I was coming up with the whole Cathedral's concept and writing the song. And Aram and I just a brilliant man. He studied with Segovia. Uh, he was mentored by Stephen Sondheim for a few years. He Columbia Law School. I mean, just a walking genius guy, and sweet and handsome and sexy. And his wife was a delight too. And we got along so well. And I, um, in the process of designing the album cover, we got very friendly. And then when it came up to, I had to find a producer to do this cathedral thing. And I couldn't go to anybody because. Uh, you know, um, and people. I talked to a couple of musicians I knew who played with Gloria Gaynor, and they thought I was nuts. And, but I can't. So I presented it to Aaron. And did uh, people think you were nuts because you hadn't done disco yet? You had done. Oh, duo. because they had already. They had had preconceived notions about. Well, the person that I recorded, once again, Dennis Gannon, the guy who formed Pyramid Records to get cathedrals out, mm-hmm. knew my whole resume. He knew I had been recording since 1961, and it didn't bother him. Because when I told him I had never worked for him directly with him as a record company or whatever, he had because he was a promotion man. But when he became A and R head of the record company, he sat down listening. It, it didn't matter, you know. It didn't matter. Like I always say, I could sell a project in a minute. <laughs> you sit down at the piano and play it, and you were sold. I don't know, but the trend. But from that point to the, the time the record came out, it was like a nightmare, and it never worked out. Yeah. But then what happens is, so uh, I'm, I'm with Aram in my apartment. And I said, Aram, I said, um, I have an idea, but provide. Then I played him, I don't want to lose you first. I don't want to those churchy chords. And uh, and then he said, wow, you should wrote that. Because he didn't even know I wrote songs. Mm-hmm. My the duo personality thing. And I said, yeah, here's another one. And here's Cathedrals. And he said, wow. He said, and I said, do you want to work on it with me? And he said, yeah. So then we got a little thing together and we presented it. Dennis Gannon at Pyramid Records. And uh, Dennis was knocked out. Knocked out. But I would say, you know, I always say, I had a friend who was a dentist who gave me all the cocaine in the world, the Merck cocaine. And I'll never forget when I presented, Dennis loved cocaine. And Aram, straight as an arrow. All he did was smoke Pell Mell and drink Coca Cola. <laughs> That's it. Of course, he died of lung cancer 
two or four years ago. And uh, he always used to say, well, God, I have something. And then when he was dying, he didn't let me know because he was dying of cancer, you know, lung cancer. Yeah. What a loss. I was just quite a man. Without Aram in my life, it never, nothing, none of this disco stuff would have happened. Right. So then I played it for Dennis, and then I went, but working with Aram in my apartment, or up in, he lived on the Upper West Side, in this, you know, one of those huge, big old apartments. Mm-hmm. And working with him and his guitar, I mean, I would go to him, you know what, I hit the strings going... It's like this. I can remember this moment. He said, "You really hear that?" And I say, "Yeah." You know what I'm saying? He says, "I think so." And the next day we'd be in the studio, and I was doing the strings, doing exactly what I heard. I said, "What is this guy reading my mind?" Because other arrangers go, "What the fuck are you humming there for me?" Yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying? And this is the first time that somebody actually the knew what time. you meant in your knew head. Knew what I meant in my head. It was priceless. It was a, it was a revelation, a moment of. Uh, of clarity and I had finally found the guy and it took me years to find the guy and he wasn't you know what people people who used to read music and write music they wouldn't try to intimidate me because they didn't know how to do it Aaron was cool with it he was amazed that I could write all these songs without knowing music yeah after studying music you know he, he wrote out the charts and he played right. important things on the guitar and whatever yeah. he was just like, oh how cool you don't read music see he, he came from another place you know yeah and he always envied, envied me of my art direction talent and my photography talent. Mm-hmm. And, then he, and see, that was something that he couldn't do. And he was go, always going, oh, shit, look at these photographs. Oh, Genya, look at these photographs. And it was like something I would do in my sleep, you know. Mm-hmm. So we had a mutual admiration society. So, mm-hmm. so when it got to that. And yeah, it's, but once the record became a hit, I, it was the whole... The whole and the, the record company, it was discussed. They decided not to talk about the the previous 15, 18 years of my recording. They wanted me to arrive on the scene nice and fresh. So they changed my name to D.C. LaRue, you know, because I had recorded under all the D.C. for David Charles, LaRue, L-A-R-U-E, to anglicize the last name. Brand new name, brand new direction with my music, brand new thing, and that's how came out. What, um... You, you recorded under Matthew Reed. Matthew Reed. Where did that come from? Bob Crew gave me that name. Okay. Why that name? He liked the name Matthew, and he uh-huh. liked the name Reed. Okay. <laughs> That's a, I didn't question him. I didn't mind it. Interesting. Matthew Reed to me sounds like somebody that I would have copied math homework off of in sixth grade. I guess so. <laughs> and then what was the... Uh, Casey Paxton. Casey Paxton. That sounds like a Ninja Turtles villain. Well, me. that's um that was Frank Slade's name. Mm-hmm. He always liked... Frank Slade did a movie with me. Oh, yeah. What was this movie? It was called Discotech Hollywood for Allied Artists. And were you acting in it? I was acting Did in it. Did you have I was a star. background in acting? I was a star. No. Well, you had the musical theater in high school. Yes, I did. Uh-huh. And I was at the... Remember the Oakdale Musical Theater in Wallingford? Yeah. Still there? Is it still there? Yeah, the Oakdale. It was in the round. Yes, it was in the round. And then now that part of it is a dome that serves as the lobby, and they built a really ugly, tacky theater for this 5,000 theater. And now that's the Oakdale Theater, but I think they still have shows in the dome in the round? sometimes. Yeah. I can remember the first show. Whenever I was... My, I would drag my grandmother to open calls. My first concert with her. You serious? Beach Boys, August 31st, 1993 or four. How cool. Yeah. And so uh, the first one was, uh, I was in uh, uh, Desert Song. I was in uh, Three Wishes for Jamie. I would do it as a little kid. I did mm-hmm. all this stuff. So I guess I did, but I never took it. Wow. I would just go in an audition and I was just an adorable little blonde curly-headed kid <laughs> with lots of, lots of nerve, yeah. So you were blonde? Yes. Okay. Are you still? You still I'm have some still blonde going on there, huh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so Cathedrals comes out after you played it for your friend Aram on the piano. He was the first one who really understood what you were talking about. Um, and then, uh, you know what I always wonder is, why is Cathedrals broken up into three different words? Cathedrals. Graphic design. Graphic design. Did you design that? I did it. Okay, yeah. you designed it yourself. I did. Yeah, I did the hand lettering, whatever. Yeah. Just to make it more artistic? Yeah, listen. Okay. And, um, to make you ask that very question. <laughs> <laughs> and you've said that cathedrals alludes to underground disco bars, drugs, sex bars. One Don't, night stands. One night stands. Tell me about that time in your life. Did you really, you mentioned drug use, did you really participate in the life or were you more an observer and watching it go on around that. you? More of an observer than watching. I, you know, uh, the armies of men across my bed. That didn't. That wasn't me so much. I, I, I wasn't. I, I fooled around, mm. but I always. I, you know, I always say, well, you know that I'm not a religious person, but I always go, my upbringing, and there's certain things that you acquire whether you like them or not. And I always used to say, I'm always too Catholic to yeah. just go to bed and. and fuck up the first day yeah, that's true <laughs> and I was I mean I just that's uh, you know whether you want to be too Catholic or not I just I was never comfortable in that anonymous anonymous faceless kind of this grabbing in the dark kind of sexual thing never loved the bathhouses never loved any of that you know but I would watch the people around me mm-hmm. and I would walk down to the trucks down uh, uh, by the west side highway down by the river trucks uh, yeah because they park the big trucks in the parking lots and people and get them back, back in the trucks and they have these torches in the trucks oh, wow in trucks wow, in I didn't trucks? know that oh please the trucks yeah and I would I would walk around and look and watch, and when I would go to the discos, a lurker, if you will, a, a lurker, if you will. <laughs> no, the disco thing, the actual dancing, I, I did that, and the actual drugs, I did that. But um, I, you know, another thing about it was, um, uh, I think I was lucky because I would always get too high to have sex with anybody. That is lucky in that time, During that time, especially. I would, and I can remember times when, uh, I mean, it was embarrassing. I, If I had found somebody to go home with who, who finally passed muster, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, with my uh, tight thing. Yeah. I lo- not that I don't love sex, and I, you know, I love sex. Good sex, bad. Good sex, good cocaine, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. The best. But the thing is, is that um, I would, by the time I got home with whoever, or I got them home with me, I would pass out. Really? Pass out? Yeah. Or go into a blackout and I'm being it's like, I was the worst. Would your partners be pissed at yes, you? Yes, they would. <laughs> would they kick you out or would you... Yes, they would. The next morning or would they kick you out that night? Well, both. Okay. <laughs> both. Also, um, uh, I took a lot of chances because there were times when I would take somebody home with me and I'd pass out. And then I'd wake up in the morning and my shoes would be gone, my cowboy boots would be gone, my watches would be gone. <clears throat> Of course, it didn't stop me at the time. Right. But I would think, gee, you know, I was so, I had passed out and I was so dead to the world that I could have been knifed in my bed. And, sure. You know, I would never woke up. But I was lucky enough that it never happened to. So, I mean, when I would go to the bathhouse with friends, I mean, I would watch. Mm-hmm. And maybe if there was somebody really attractive, I would go and chat with them and go for coffee with them mm-hmm. after they got their clothes on and make a date for the next day. Okay. As absurd as it may sound, that's how I had to work. That's how I was. Was this man Saved my ass. Saved my ass. Just women, was it? When I had, well, women, no, it, it was both. Initially, it was both. Mm-hmm. And, and in high school, I had uh, a girlfriend most of the time in high school. 
Nancy. And um Nancy Aaron Holt. No, Nancy Lowe. Okay. <laughs> and uh and uh Beth Holland and uh Betty Flanagan. Really? And Carol Rosamondo. These are such old school sounding names. You don't hear names like this anymore. Well, they were real. And <laughs> it's funny that I remember my girlfriends in high school. But in the, my junior years I also fell in love with my best friend, Ed. That happened, yeah. Ed. Ed. Yes. I had a Danny. Kleber. And he was uh, German and French. German, gorgeous. Well, we were friends. And mm-hmm. We used to play guitar together. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, and we used to double date. He okay. would go out with Diana. For I'd go out with Nancy. We'd go parking. We'd make out, and then he'd come over to my house at night and stay over. <laughs> and you'd want to be making out with him. I mean, this was the love of my life. Let me tell you. And we used to play guitar together. And we also dreamed like of being a skip and flip or Simon and Garfunkel or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing happened with Bob Crew on my own yeah. and as soon as I signed the deal and made a record it was like he wouldn't talk to me again he wasn't happy for you no he wanted he wanted it to be a duet he wanted it to be a Simon and Garfunkel we both had guitars we play all the time we're in the school show all together and boy when I got the record deal in my senior year he just couldn't deal with it wow so I still deal dating Nancy she wanted to marry me mm-hmm. trouble with, the trouble with women in my life is um they, it's they get caught up in that that uh, fantasy romantic thing, mm-hmm. you know the, uh, and it it doesn't exist. And That's what you were talking about before? Yeah, before the troubadour thing, yeah. and the monogamy thing, and mm-hmm. and uh, I would get involved with a couple of people who I'm still talking to, a couple of ladies that that at one time I had a, uh, like a romantic thing. I won't mention their name because they're out there on Facebook, and I don't want them to listen to this. They know who they are. <laughs> but but this one lady went with me to California when I was uh, with Casablanca. Because uh-huh. we, we, had, we had such a fun relationship. Oh, it was so bad. It was so much fun. And then we got there. But she knew I didn't want to get married, and she knew I didn't want to have kids. I never wanted children. Never. Really? Never. Never even possibly considered having a child. For outrageous reasons, but... <laughs> what are these outrageous reasons? <laughs> what if I didn't like it? Child. What if I didn't like that daughter? What if I didn't like the son? It I know that I'm human. I couldn't pretend that I loved somebody I didn't love. Even though, and people say to me, "Oh, once you see it, and once you see it, it's your flesh and blood, and once you see yourself in that child, you'll change." I said, "No, I won't. I know myself. No, I won't. What if it's an ugly little girl with a big nose who's, who's as dumb as those, like a, you know, who's, who's slow and who's like dumb and unattractive and no person." I'm, I, you're not gonna. T- I don't want that in my life. I don't want to have to. I don't want to have to think about what I would be like or what okay. I would do. It's fair. Outrageous, but fair. It is. Well, it's real. That's how I've always been. You know, my mom used to say to me, "You're not even human. You're not even human. <laughs> you have no emotions. You don't feel like other people feel." And she was right. She was correct. She was right. Um, and so um, uh, I remember. And we had a problem. We had this like a conversation about her wanting to come back to. To New York City and have raised a family, and I was no, no. That's as simple as that. Well, yeah. I'm going back anyway. Well, goodbye. You know, it was mm-hmm. great fun. Wow. Well, you've mentioned Bob Crew a couple times, so that uh, that all started with a very odd thing, right? And then take it back uh, for a moment. Um, My father's secretary, Marilyn, right? Marilyn, yes. And she always loved. Me and my music. You know, I told you I was always all, I was all over in the school, orchestras and the this and 
and and performing for the Lions Club and performing for the Rotary Club, you know, the whole thing. And she was a big fan. She thought I was adorable and very talented. And she was right. Mm-hmm. So uh, she had a, a, a boyfriend who used to come to New York City every once in a while to party on weekends. Yeah. And uh, he met this guy in party, and they were chit-chatting. And, uh, and the guy he met said, oh, he was talking about this and that. He said, oh, I have a very good friend, Bob, who's a very fabulous record producer. And, and Tony goes, oh, yeah, well, my father's secretary has this little kid in Cheshire, Connecticut, who's just terrific, little Davey. He has seen me, too. He mm-hmm. loves me, too. He had a little Davy, and he writes all his own songs, and he's so cute in his curly hair. And, and so, uh, as the Bob's friend said, "Well, send me a couple of demos, and I'll get them to Bob." You know, and you know, what what were the odds that he would get? I would make the demos. I went with my dad to New Haven, the little rinky recording studio, studio in New Haven, the piano voice demos, four songs. Gave them to Tony. Tony gave them to Bob's friend. Bob's friend had dinner with Bob, gave Bob the, the demos. Bob listened to him the next morning and called me, signed me. Wow. Just like that. Wasn't there a guy named Ben Parker in that the was, mix? That was it, Ben. And was this before or after his nephew Peter turned into Spider-Man? <laughs> that was before. <laughs> okay. Um, well, that yeah, that is crazy. And then you it worked, is crazy. worked with Bob Crew. And, and, that, and at that moment, yeah. my relationship with Ed just disintegrated because he got so jealous I was making records by myself. Right. And tell me about when Bob Crew would enter a room, what would happen? Oh, this man. This man. He was, he was the most excited. He was tall and handsome and, and exciting and talented and dynamic. And you'd walk into a room and he was one of those kind of men, strawberry blonde hair, six foot two, and you'd walk into a room and it would be like, wow. Uh-huh. Just dynamite. The yeah. men falling over him, women falling over him, old people, young people. He was just exciting beyond belief. Just exciting beyond belief. And he was always the show. He was always the show. I don't know how he... And he came up with a hundred different successful acts, you know, Miss yeah. Ryder and the Detroit Cleet and Teals, and the Toys and the Four Seasons. I don't know, his list of hits was endless. But he was always... And to be around Bob, to bask in his, in his glow was just delightful. I fell in love with the man. Just, and we and and he was one of those guys who, from the very beginning, said, "Oh, you're going to be a star. Oh, you're going to be a star. Oh, you're going to be a star." But then, when he wasn't a star with him, he said, "Not going to be a star with me." <laughs> but don't give up. You and, and all and we maintained that relationship. And uh, it's an old story, but I, I'm uh, Cathedrals had become number one dance record and whatever. And I was at the first Billboard convention here in New York City, the, the Billboard Disco Convention, and Bob was there promoting. Uh, uh, street Life or Street Talk, one of his disco, early disco albums, and he just written Wooly Wooly Cliche Avec Ma for LaBelle. And he was in the lobby handing out um, uh, 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 DJ copies of the 12 inch to. Talking about Lady Marmalade, right? Lady Marmalade, uh-huh. yeah. And so then um, I uh, I walk by and I go, Oh, Mr. Grew, Mr. Grew, can I have a copy of this record? Did you sign it for me? And he goes, Oh, Matthew Reed. He goes, I'm just saying and so he takes the record and he says, he says, to DC from BC. And he, and he gave it to me and he hugged me and he says, you know what? I knew you were going to be a star. I just didn't know what kind. And and uh, and that kind of reconnected us and we had been friends of the best. I photographed him the, the, the night that the Jersey Boys opened at his hotel. I got some great photographs. 
what was he like while you were photographing him in that in the opening night of Jersey Boys? What was that experience? Wonderful. Like? We did it in his hotel room. It was just the two of us. And uh, <clears throat> we're still he, talking about taking photos here, right? Yeah. And and he was. It was never anything like that. You know? It was all. It was just clear the stuff. I was never as, as exciting as he was. I was never attracted to him sexually. Really, you know. And I wasn't his type either. Mm-hmm. You know, he liked the uh, Marlboro Man. Okay. Kind of type. As 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 big and gorgeous and handsome as he was, he liked. He didn't like me. Not you remember what you guys talked about then? Was he nervous about the show opening at all? I mean, he well, wasn't well, it. you know what I said to him because I had gone back so far. Uh-huh. Uh huh. He had always been friendly with, uh, what was his name, Leslie Brickus? Okay. The guy of, of, out of England, who was a big, uh, you know, Anthony Newley, Stop the World, I Want to Get Off. During that area in the in the mid-60s, like 60s, all those English imports were coming into town with big successful things. British Invasion? No, Broadway. Oh. Broadway British, British Invasion. Okay. And, um... BBI. Yeah, yeah. And, uh... uh and and he had this guy that he was friendly with, but he always resented this guy Leslie because he Bob wanted to be Broadway so bad, and that's a different thing. It's like it, as many hints as Bob had, he could never just get accepted by that little Broadway clique. Mm-hmm. It really is. It really is a very tight knit thing, mm-hmm. and you have to come from a different place with a different energy to and claw your way up in that particular genre. Sure. And you can't just like being crossed over from pop records. Mm-hmm. So, um, at the time, and so we're in the room and we're just getting all set to go. This was he was just like in a, a button-down shirt and a pair of jeans, but at this point, it's too early in the evening. And so we're talking about it, and he was like, he was like very excited about it. And I said, you know, Bob, I said you got the last laugh. He said, what do you mean? I, he said, you're finally on Broadway. This is something you've wanted to do since 1968. Is have a Broadway show? It's nice the opening of the show. And I said. All the dreams are coming true. Yeah. Even at this late date, the last dream is coming true. And I remember when uh, we were like in the fourth row center, and uh, did you see Jersey Boys? Twice, yeah. I have a friend in it now. He's playing oh. Tommy DeVito, so, so Lori Max Kaplan. So you know the show. Yeah. So we're we're there and Great act. about right into the okay it, guitars. We're right into like like halfway through the show or whatever. The songs, you know, everybody in the world knows those songs. And yeah. I'm working my way back to you, girl. And everybody is so energized in the audience. Mm-hmm. You know, who knew? So on their feet, they're singing. And I turned, because I'm so close to the theater, and I turned to look at the theater. Everybody in the house was standing and singing along. That's amazing. Everybody in the house. And I looked at Bob and I said, turn around, Bob. Mm-hmm. I said, I've never seen this in a Broadway show ever. Yeah. Ever. And I've seen some huge hits, yeah. and uh, it was amazing. Every and, and from that point on to the end of the show, every song you turn around, the entire audience was singing along. It was an audience participation jukebox musical, big time, and it, yeah. it was tremendously successful. Bob was making so much; he was making more than a million dollars a week just off of the musical. Yes. Um, can you do a Frankie Valli impression? No. <laughs> How about Chichi Marie? Yes, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, you they're do. similar. Sim, very. You know Chi Chi? I don't, but I heard you talk about yeah. her. <laughs> Chi Chi Rosemary. 
she was a uh, she was a, a black lady who sang in the the fifties and the yeah late fifties, mm-hmm. and she had that um, she was like Shirley Shirley and Lee. Come on, baby, let's a good time roll. And she had the same kind of uh, voice, you know, yeah. like that. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> and Frankie Valli did a record called uh, Don't Think Twice, mm-hmm. the Bob Dylan song. And the Chi Chi <laughs> Rosemary song. Uh-huh. And so then we were playing around and, and I learned how to sing like Chi Chi from him. <laughs> from Frankie, Frankie Valley. Frankie, yeah. So so you and Frankie Valley then formed a relationship. Or? Very friendly. Uh, now that's the kind of, it, yes. Uh-huh. It's not the kind of relationship where I'm on the phone with him all the time. Mm-hmm. And I see him on occasion, you know, and we don't even exchange Christmas cards. But mm-hmm. when he's in town I went to his roast at the, the Fires Club. Oh, really? Yeah. And there were things... Uh, what, last time he was out in Long Island uh, at the theater... Westbury. Westbury. I was there backstage, so I had some photographs taken. He's a wonderful man. Always, always been very sweet with me. He's he, And he's a legend. And he's... At one time, he was the biggest... Seasons were the biggest vocal group in the world. In the world. Yeah. One of them went after another, after another, until the Beatles came along to replace them. They were They were gigantic. The four seasons, and uh, uh, at least with me, I would say I was qualified. At least with me, Frankie never was anything but the sweetest man you could imagine. He did background vocals on my first record for Bob. I was going to ask that. Yes. Did I hear that right? That the, the four, four seasons, seasons did your background uh, vocals on, on my first record for Bob Jane, yeah, and all four wow. sides, yeah. What's what were these songs? They were the songs that I recorded on the demo that Tony sent. <laughs> Ben Parker, sent to Bob Spider-Man. Group. Yes, that's uh-huh. right. Uh-huh. Sure. So, so that when I got into that was uh, I did that before. Um, I did my records before Frankie and the Seasons got their act together with Sherry. Mm-hmm. So I remember I was at the Sherry session. We did something on this, you know. So you can hear that on the recording. You can hear it on the recording. Yeah. Wow. And you knew, right, when you walked out of that oh, studio, everybody, you knew it was listen, be the you know, song in the world. It never happened. Well, it happened with me with cathedrals, so uh-huh. it's, it, 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 it seemed to never happen with me. But we'd go into a session uh, with Bob. I used to love to hang out with Bob. It's crazy. Now it didn't have to be my recording session. I would right. just go to be. It was fabulous being in his in his presence and watching him work. And uh, yeah, so he uh, he had the seasons do the background vocals on my record. And uh, and then Sherry came along, and and we were coming out of the studio, and everybody looked at each other and said, "What the fuck? This record is such a hit, such a hit." You know, every once in a while in my life I've experienced that. There was with Bob Crew records too. I mean, he made he he, he was so prolific and he did so many recordings. I mean, it's just like mind-boggling how much product he put out as an independent producer. But I can remember when we, at the session for the toys, how gentle is the rain that falls from the end of the night. It came out of the session. Everybody said the same. Oh, what a hit, what a hit. You could, you know, moments where you could hear it. And when we came out of cathedrals, I'll never forget, we were walking out of cathedrals, and uh, Aaron turned to me, uh, well, Stephen Crystal was like, oh, it's a hit, I was a <laughs> And then Aram turned to me and he said, David, he said, that's the best fucking record I've ever made in my life. He said, I don't, I don't think I'll ever top it. He said, I can't believe it. It just sounds like such a hit. So I had that experience with Cathedrals. <laughs> you know, wow. that's it. And wasn't Cathedrals one of the first hits in the modern era anyway that didn't get radio play? 
yes, Bill was a Well, first hit. of all, it was never meant to be a three-minute, 20-second record. Right. It was always seven minutes long. It was very difficult to edit down, uh-huh. just the way it was constructed musically. And also, <clears throat> I, I couldn't get play on stations that played long tracks because... At that time, in 1976, the lyric was too racy for radio. They wouldn't play it in, on American radio. What was the racy lyric in it? Where have the numbers gone that marched across my bed, the faces after faces that's still inside my head, the words of love, the hollow sound of hungry people in the night. The one night stands. The one night stands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's okay. Well, that's yeah. They wouldn't play it. Became a big hit anyway. They wouldn't play. They wouldn't play. Uh, Let them dance on the radio either. Mm-hmm. Why not? It's about drug dealers and, and hustlers.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.